This is Square Pizza, cooked up by Shermco. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Square Pizza podcast. Today's interview is with Shawnee Dowell, the founder of Possup, a platform that helps make school decision makers' job easier through gathering feedback from families, parents, and teachers. In this episode, we are covering the founding process and inspiration behind Possup, the power of Possup's platform, and Shawnee's connection to both Beyonce and Jay-Z. So we hope you enjoyed the episode. Here we go. Okay, good. Shawnee Dowell, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? You are in Nashville today? Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. What is happening in the lovely city of Nashville? I uh, <laughs> um, uh, these times, the quarantine time is not the best. As you, yeah. as you know, kind of being from Nashville, Nashville is all about festivals, music, large gatherings of lots of people <laughs> and food together. So unfortunately, it's not the best time for our city because uh, people do still do that, but you don't get to enjoy that they're doing that because they shouldn't be doing that. That was actually my next question. Like, I'll Luckily, not my friends on social media, but just like news broadcasts and things around like Broadway and some of the stuff felt like um, they weren't taking it perhaps as seriously as some might no. be good. Is it getting better or is it still kind of wild? No, it's never open, so it's back back to it. Um, East Nashville, I think they take things more seriously. Um, about East Nashville, one, one yeah. time for a few years. Um, so it's better, but again, it's kind of sad because, you know, East Nashville is also a place where it's fun to like gather together. Sure. So, but yeah, but no, 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 the Broadway is doing Broadway. <laughs> Hopefully, I don't even know what to say. But I do think the rates are going down. I think we seem to be headed in a positive direction. So hopefully we can stay on that path long enough to open schools back up. I kind of joke, I do feel like we're a little bit like uh, in a marathon and like right before the last two miles, we're like, let's go have a beer because they keep reopening the bars right before like we get yep. the case low enough to be able to open schools. So yep. um, yeah. Probably a good metaphor for that. It's probably good. <laughs> um, okay, nonetheless, thank you for joining the Square Pizza Pod. Excited to to have you. Um, hopefully, as you know, I think we're going to start hopefully with, with um, uh, some fun, maybe interesting facts to, to kick off the podcast today. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe one a few years back, and then another fact that's maybe more current. But there's a rumor going around that you once attended the Jay-Z <laughs> party in 1997, which might be the best interesting fact, if true, we've had so far. So please confirm <laughs> it's true or deny it and then tell us more. It is. It, sometimes sometimes um, age, having, having kind of been around for a long time, has this, there's actually a couple of fun facts connected to, to I, this story. I was around in 97, but I wasn't at the Jay-Z house party. So I was in 1997. I was a junior, a rising senior in college. I went to Howard University undergrad, and I was working at an internship at Goldman Sachs. So um, my, my best friend from college and I, we both lived in, in New York. We lived in Park Slope before. I mean, it was kind of on its way to being super expensive, but it was before. And fun fact that we learned after the fact, so we live above a black bookstore called Nkiru Books. And okay. we learned after the fact that that bookstore was owned by Most Def. So we didn't know that at the time. Wow. So back in 1997, we were basically subletting from a model who was like traveling around for the summer. So, uh, so during that time though, we would just kind of like pop around as, you know, we were kind of a bunch of college students. We had some other friends and we would pop around and some, somebody learned about a house party. And this 
back. I think Jay-Z had probably had one song out, but he had at his apartment in Brooklyn, he was having it. And, and to be fair, it was like a lot of people because it was out in kind of like the garden. But yeah, I was close enough to see Jay-Z and be, you know, I saw him and yeah, got to be at a party at Jay-Z's house. So it was just in the middle of the summer in 1997 in New York and he was having a house party and we came. <laughs> now he's an early investor in Possum. What's that? No. <laughs> no, but we were so connected. I mean, so um, the church that I used to go to in Houston, I'm originally from Houston. Um, the yeah, church that Beyonce. Yeah. yeah, the church that I used to go to, Beyonce actually went there also. We didn't overlap at all, but Beyonce went there. She's invested a lot of money and they have a, a large homeless ministry. And so, um, you know, just, you know, she, she, sometimes some of the videos she shoots, her parents kind of lived where it was myself. I'm just like, I'm just a, a couple of degrees removed. So it's kind of Whoa, like, you know, you know guys like, how many degrees are they from Oprah? It's like that, where you're like, I'm so close. <laughs> um, I mean. And yet I'll, so far. <laughs> no, I, I think you got to own it. I think you got to say you and Jay-Z are best friends. I think you got to yeah. talk about how you grew up together. I think, I think you should own it. Uh, yeah, I should. I should go, go for it. Um, okay, so then skipping a few years beyond 1997, also a rumor going around that you're the first black woman to ever raise a million dollars, I think in Tennessee, or just like an, an ed tech focused um firm um, in Tennessee is that is that also true which is awesome. um yeah I've been to in, in Tennessee um and you know I've always had like mixed feelings about the extent to which we s celebrate that or even acknowledge it I mean I think but I've, I've actually made peace with the fact that it is something that's important to celebrate yeah. and talk about um and part of what led me to kind of um feel a little more part of you can understand like the reasons why of course is like you know it's unfortunately um it shouldn't be like you know we, we shouldn't it shouldn't be so slow, you know, they're, they're, you know, I've kind of joked that you could probably sit on a board and, and have more white men who've raised a million dollars than, you know, kind of the number of black women in Tennessee. So, sure. um, so that's on the one hand, but um, an article came out in our local paper, the Tennessean, and, you know, it got picked up by USA Today. And so it was on Facebook. And then I saw people who I went to high school with, some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't, who were mm -hmm. celebrating that fact. And so it just reminded me that, you know, it's not really about us. It's really about other people and giving other people the motivation and the inspiration to know what's possible. Yep. And maybe $1 million isn't like, you know, especially kind of compared to how, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that others raise. It's, you know, not as significant, but it's still super important for folks to see what's possible so that they can start to um, dream bigger for themselves and kind of see what's more possible for them. No, I mean, yeah, I think that's right and super well put. I mean, Shirley probably, 100% should have happened by now, but good that, you know, you are the first and hopefully opening the gates for, mm -hmm. for more, but then also for, you know, the 12-year-old the black girl in Nashville or in Memphis who sees that, who knows it's possible and knows and, and sees you as an inspiration that can also do that. So I think that's, that's certainly something to be celebrated, if nothing else. Yeah, and for so many entrepreneurs who are still on their journey, and um, I look to other people as role models for me of what's possible, and so for them, you know, for kind of another generation of folks to see what's possible also is, is super important. And you know, interestingly, I was just sharing, we actually, um, uh, I'll share that another time. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, let's kind of keep going. You know, I think you raised it for POSSIP um, and now like I've been running this incredible organization that you know, we've used before and we love with some of the schools that we support, but also because it's so focused on families and family empowerment. Mm -hmm. um, so just tell the people like what it is, what it's doing and kind of the greatness behind the work. Yeah, at its heart, POSSIP is really um, trying to do two things. One is um, help make decision makers' jobs easier. So school leaders, district leaders, um, 
they have to make impossible decisions. But part of what's hard about their decisions is they're trying to make it without the voices of the people who, who are affected most by their decisions. And so that's the second part of what we're trying to do is make it really easy for parents and families and also staff members to share their voice, both the praise, what's going well, and then also the feedback or the needs. And so the way we do that is through um, uh, 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 our platform that um, sends out routine text messages, text message prompts to families or staff asking, you know, we call it a sentiment question. Uh, and we've had to change it a little bit based on kind of, you know, folks aren't even in physical school now. But so it's a combination of like, are you happy? Or is the school meeting your child's needs? Or um, that's on one hand, and then follow up. And we really leave it open ended. Um, and part of that, um, leaving the, the kind of follow up questions more open ended is just a personal, it's a personal theory that I've had that I get more convicted about as we go on, which is Surveys play an important role, annual surveys play an important role, and yet how we've designed surveys are so closed-ended. And as we think about kind of um, just having a more equitable and open process, so much of what people want to share may not be included in the 15 questions that we think to ask about. And sure. so we keep it really open-ended so that on the back end, we can kind of organize and provide trends and themes back to the uh, leaders so that they can have better decision-making. So um, again, it's about, helping leaders make better decisions and helping families and staff be more empowered to your point and, and feel like they have agency in uh, the way that schools and districts um, educate their child. Yep. Yeah, I think what, you know what, from afar, why we selfishly love it, but probably from what we've seen with the schools that have used it as well, is that it, one, gives data and insights back to your point to the decision makers on the school and the teachers and the principals and the school leaders, but then also the decision makers at home too around families mm -hmm. and kind of creating that early connection point. So it's not, um, you know, October, November, December when student A is struggling in school or like been late to school. There's no relationship built between both those parties at that point. So often, you know, relationship perhaps is on the wrong foot, but when you start and create that bridge early, um, both parties that are so instrumental into a child's life are already connected and working together. Yeah, and it really, I mean, you know, it's just like the power of questions on, it forces you as a leader to think about like, okay, what do I want parents to be saying about my school, my district? What are the positive things I want them to be saying? What are the areas that I know they should expect that we're doing right and so they can share feedback? And then on the parent side, like, what are things that I need to be asking my student about? Like, what do I want to hear about so that I can report back? And so I think, you know, so much of the family engagement research shows that a large part of the power of family engagement is actually what happens outside of the school day. So the extent to which you're engaged and what they're learning academically, or you, you know, know what's happening. And we still have a long way to go in education in terms of one, just providing families the information so that they can be engaged, but then two, having a feedback loop so we can hear back. And you know, now is the perfect time where we're able to see on display why it's so important, I think. One of the things, I think kind of the school closures taught us two things. One is that teachers are irreplaceable. And then two is that parents are irreplaceable. I think, you know, sometimes there's this narrative in education, like I'm going to extract a child from the home, <laughs> educate them, you know, pour knowledge into them and then send them back. And I think you, so you can see like, no, you cannot remove families from the equation. So it's been really, I think, an important time for us to learn that lesson. Yeah. Can you share more around like kind of size and reach of what you guys had maybe before this school year and then going into now with COVID, if it's increased, decreased or anything yeah. else? Yeah, it's, it's increased pretty significantly. Um, I imagine so. Yeah, about, um, so as we were, I mean, we were growing before COVID and how I described some of our growth before is I think a lot of our initial original partners were really people who were just like kind of mission aligned. Like they were, wanting to hear from families and their staff just because it was the right thing to do. So they just had kind of like a mission orientation around the importance of family voice. 
And I think that's still the case. Of course, like all of our customers who've come on since share that. I just think the level of urgency has increased where it's not just like the right thing to do, but it's a need. Like it is, you know, you need to know, like, do families have the technology? Like districts have, have kind of gone through lots of work to get technology into hands of students. But we know, like, even with the ex what they're having to do to kind of manage, you know, tens of thousands of devices in the hands of families is pretty monumental. And so they need a way for families to share back about, like, hey, how is this technology working or not working? Uh, you, you kind of create these, like, ideas about how curriculum should work or how synchronous and asynchronous learning should work. And, you know, you don't really, as teachers, you know, you're a former teacher also, so much of how we kind of get our information is by what we're seeing right in front of us. And that's the same for building leaders. You're so used to making decisions based on what's right in front of you yeah. every day. And you don't really have that. I mean, you have it in a little, <laughs> you know, yeah, no, very true. by two inch box, but like, you know, so you really need to be able to hear from families. And also it's only a lot of um, schools are only able to deliver, you know, between two and four hours of live teaching. And really probably the research would say like, two to three hours is probably the ideal of like live teaching. So that still means there means there's a lot of learning that's having to happen outside of, you know, teams time or zoom time or whatever, you know, kind of technology you're using. Yep. Um, and so anyway, so that's all to say, we, we have seen quite a bit of growth and I think it's really important. Um, and, and, and transparently some of our team members, like uh, we're, you know, we were already passionate before, but we get just so passionate about the need to have routine ways to have that conversation and feedback loop going, yep. um, especially during this time. I mean, it's so well positioned, right? Even pre-COVID, but now given the virtual nature in which everybody's working and to have this tool and to have it be accessible for schools is huge, number one. And I guess number two, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm imagining too is like from my own experience teaching and working in schools, but also now supporting schools, that even if you have to have a tough conversation with families or deliver news or ask questions around virtual learning or in-person learning, <clears throat> it's much easier. Maybe there's much more grace extended to both ways when those relationships are already built, um, which your tool allows to do. Is that fair to yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was just talking with the school leader about this also. Yeah, like, first of all, like, families are, um, at least at their intention, they, they have a lot of grace for what's happening. They, you know, for the most part, of course, you, like, have outliers, but for the most part, I'd say families are extending a, a ton of grace um, for just the challenge that we're in. Um, and part of what I was sharing, though, is sometimes I was, you know, I recently was, talking to a family who had withdrawn their student from the school. And part of what I was sharing with this other school leader is sometimes families just need to know that they have a way to share that things don't have to, aren't going to permanently be in their way. And so, so, right. so often schools, you know, they, there's not a, a way for parents to share. And so instead of saying like, I'm going to be able to share this feedback, they're going to hear that feedback. We can, things can change. They just leave. And so we're seeing, you know, a pretty large exodus, I mean, as a person, even if it's like just five to 10%, we know our public schools are pretty fragile. And so five to 10%, you know, disenrollment is non-trivial. And so, but I think sometimes that's because families don't really know the way to change what's not working for them. And so what we offer is, like you said, the relationships, the opportunity to build a relationship in a way that it doesn't have to be um, always high stakes. Yeah. Um, but then two, to like have a platform through which you can share so that your only option isn't to just leave, but it's to say, hey, we can actually stay in this. I know we're gonna, things aren't gonna be perfect, but I can share some of our ideas or what, what we like to see change. You're gonna be able to have a way to hear them and then respond. And so there's just no, you know, 
to share this on Twitter, like, you know, we're all founders this year, like yeah. teachers, <laughs> you know, school yeah. leaders, parents. So like, as you, you know, this as an entrepreneur, you're constantly learning, changing, adjusting, yep. adapting, taking feedback and like all the ways that it comes in. Some of it's formalized, but some of it's not formal. It's just like what you learn from what you see. And so um, schools need that. It's just the difference between like, potentially probably what we work with and what a school works with is they are that they're just they're they have to deal with such diverse and dispersed populations particularly school districts you know they're they're thinking about you know tens of thousands of students hundreds of thousands sometimes you know hundreds of languages and so just like the levels of complexity that they have to try to like take in to, to make decisions is pretty significant well, I think too, like bring schools and families on the same page or same team if you will right like sometimes um, you know, whether families have been disenfranchised from schools or just haven't had good experiences, sometimes they're schools and families and then children are kind of at ends with each other. And I think this brings them together around sharing what they want, what they need, and then vice versa, which I think in an ideal world, there's no reason why kind of schools and families should not be working together at the end of the day um, to begin with. Yeah, it's neat. We've seen it actually with a couple of partners um, and we, we started to do staff surveys too during this time. And what we've seen a few times is actually sometimes you'll see families and staff sharing the same challenges. And I think what's neat about that is, you know, as we're out together. <laughs> yeah. And as humans, we're actually all part of a system. Like we all end up parts of systems. Um, and so sometimes what I might be doing as what I think might be best. So a good example is I think there were for some schools who really wanted, they knew that like for parents who had kids at home who were like five or six, so that's super stressful and challenging. Yep. So yep. sometimes some schools in an effort to be really responsive to that, put created more virtual learning time because you know your thought would be like oh that's helpful mm -hmm. five hours of live teaching will help the parents because the parents will be able to kind of like not have their but the reality is that's hard for teachers <laughs> to be, and, and i think we're all seeing that five and six year olds are really struggle to be on zoom sure. and that longer time is actually harder so it's you know from well-intentioned place um but then when you can bring the voices of the people together you can hear like oh actually this isn't working as we thought it would work and so let's rethink it but otherwise you could think like as a parent like oh as a parent you think oh well the school's saying my child needs to be on here five or six hours that must be the right thing to do as a teacher you could be thinking like oh well parents probably want their kid to be occupied so five or six hours is ideal and never no one ever gets to share the information and like hey actually this isn't working for either of us <laughs> yeah so i just think that having more opportunities for people to actually share honestly and with kind of grace uh, then you can solve some of the problems before people just get frustrated and, and, yep. and walk away. Yeah, that's so important. I imagine like you've rolled a lot of the previous experiences you've had into possible and like building a team. And so like if for those that don't know, people need to go check out your LinkedIn profile because it's like the who's who of ed organizations and social impact work before this point. But would love to hear like from all those kind of experiences, but then also knowing like, this podcast, but also our work is focused on ed equity. And we don't think that can happen without just real conversations around being anti-racist as, as an organization and as a country and as people we work for. So with all those things kind of um, at the center, we'd love to just hear like your experience in this space with the different professional careers you've had and how race and gender have, have played a part in your career at all. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, one of the things that's not on my LinkedIn um, is my parents. So my parents, um, and I joke, is actually like after I started, possibly probably like a year later, it, it came to me. So my mom is a licensed counselor. So she spent most of her career doing marital counseling and also juvenile counseling. And she, for many of her years, she was working um, 
in the juvenile detention center, like so doing counseling there. So she's a counselor. My dad is actually, he has a company that does research and evaluation. So they'll do a lot like evaluation of like Head Start or Job Corps programs. And so I kind of joke like possibly some mashup of that. It's kind of like, yeah, what's the deal about yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't even realize it, but it's like my dad's like a PhD. So his is like very research. Like, and ours, is, I feel like is like more about like kind of the ongoing relationship and routine. So it's not, you know, so, but I do think that that, that, that kind of is a big part of, my experiences that didn't even come to me until later but i do think part of what i learned from my mom and her work as a therapist and i think that's kind of just is the importance of talking and sharing and feedback and honest you know conversation sure, and sure. that you know um there's a james baldwin quote uh something like you know not everything that is not everything that is seen can be fixed but nothing can be fixed if it's not seen it's i'm maturing it but yep. You know, that's the idea. And I think that that's very much from kind of a counseling perspective, which is the importance of sharing things, getting things out in the open, having conversations. And then there's also an importance of like data, just like hardcore data, trends, what are we seeing year over year, time over time compared to others. Um, and so I think those two things are really important. Um, I think in terms of, you know, a couple of the, the spaces where POSIP came from in the lens of race and um, gender. Yeah. Um, so part of it came from the, you know, my husband who leads schools and it was really a dinner table conversation. Shout he out to I, Randy. Shout out to Randy. <laughs> yeah. Um, we were having a dinner table conversation um, about a parent issue that had kind of grown. And so I was both like hearing his stress. So that's part of kind of like the two, the two way description of possible I gave at the beginning is really that. So like I empathize with school leaders. I've worked with hundreds of school leaders over time. I know how hard that job is. I know how hard the teaching job is. Um, I've recruited teachers. I know how hard recruiting and retaining teachers is. So he was sharing the stress because one, it's just stressful. Anytime someone's kind of like angry at you, it's just naturally a stressful <laughs> thing. Um, two, this, this angry parent was like calling and stressing out the teachers. And so as he and I were in this back and forth though, I was also empathizing with a parent because I'm the mother of two school-aged children. And so overall, I know that sometimes even when people deliver feedback in the not the greatest way there might be some there there and so sure. it's really that back and forth conversation he and I were having where you know I was saying well you know um and again some of this is like kind of a therapist or counseling side I was like you know how can parents identify their issues before like when they're just a pinch like before they become like so big that they have to like yell at you <laughs> yeah, and so we kind of realized like actually there's not a prompt a lot of times people need to be prompted to even know that they're bothered about something or or you know so that's kind of the first part and then I said well you know she's not sharing this feedback in the best way but do you have any trend data to know if other parents feel this way and so we went back and forth and realized that like actually no there's not really a systemic way that information like that is gathered and then um third thing he said is well you know this makes my teacher's job so hard they work so hard and they only hear from parents when things are bad mm -hmm. so that really convicted me as a former teacher as a parent who loves my kids teachers and realizing like oh my goodness are we as parents sometimes driving teachers out of the profession like the people who we most wow. need <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, in there for our child and with this and even if it's not me personally if it's another parent who you know like so how do we create the space i as a parent maybe can't stop another parent from yelling at a teacher but I can share what's going well for me and my child, such that if something's not going well one day with one child, with one parent, that's not the only experience you've had hearing from parents. And so it was really kind of these three things that led me to think. And then I think that's where race and gender came in, which is I was like, why don't we make it super easy for parents to share? Um, and so make a text message. I'm like, no one wants to download another app. Um, <laughs> make it in their language. And I think part of what I realized, I didn't think this was like a big idea or a big deal, but then I realized when I was even going out fundraising sometimes, 
I would talk to prospective investors and they say like, well, it's not like, you know, does anyone not share what they're thinking? And so I think that's very much so a gendered and racial kind of privilege where someone's like, well, if I have something, I just share it with the school. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a very entitled place where there are, I had, I had sat on mom car lines and mom's text chains where people are like sharing all this stuff back and forth with each other that never enters into the school. Cause it doesn't, they don't necessarily even think the school wants to know, doesn't right. And I know as a person in education, how desperately schools want to hear from families, but a lot of parents or especially people who've been historically disenfranchised with power don't think that they're entitled to share their feedback. So, um, so I think that's been a huge part. And then when I, when I was starting possibly and I looked at other communication companies, so first I was trying to see, is there anywhere that were, you know, kind of, it's the different directionality. So not from the school to, or district to parents, but from parents to the school, I found that there weren't others that I could see. And when I would look on the leadership teams, it would be like, not just like the top level, but I would have to go, sometimes I can never find a person on the website who wasn't an older white man. And so that just struck me as really odd because we know so much of the communication with schools really does involve women and our public schools are predominantly now students of color. And so the fact that, you know, that, that identity is not represented within kind of multiple levels of companies sure. around communication seemed to me hugely problematic. Wow. Um, uh, I'm realizing I, I thought I was all charged up. Um, oh, we're, we might, so my battery might die. <laughs> <laughs> well, more, more reason for us to, uh, okay, 60 seconds left, I think, to honor your battery. Uh, and I think the lunch your, your uh, child brought you. Um, so 30 seconds or less, uh, what's one thing you would tell um, the audience to do to improve education by the end of the week? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, you know, I believe in money. So I, I feel like find a school you love and just send them money. Folks are under-resourced and can find a way to spend it. Yeah, I think very practical. Love it. Uh, and a, a bit of a selfish one, but hopefully still fun. Uh, what does square pizza remind you of? Uh, actually Jets pizza, which yeah. makes me think of Halloween. Jets is a pizza here. It actually also remembers, it reminds me of Little Caesars. So when I was in high school, I was the president of Students and Prejudice and we had a lock-in and Little Caesars donated pizza for us. So not, I, I don't love the taste of Little Caesars, but um, I do appreciate that they did that. And I do love the taste of Jets. Jets is very tasty and we, we order it for our, our annual Halloween party, which we won't be having this year. Not in the same way, at least. <laughs> So yeah, a quick connection. The um, when I was in Nashville, I lived in off Elliston Place. I think before it got bougier than what it is now. At least when I went back a few years ago. But our apartment was on top of the Jets, and I never went to Jets. But then, if you ever opened the door or the window, it was like wafting up. So I swear I gained 15 pounds that year because it was so it close, and you couldn't go out without walking past it or smelling it. And it's good pizza. It's pretty good. It's funny. We lived literally across the street from a Captain D's for five years and uh, like we could see the drive-thru and we never went. But one New Year's, we made a resolution that if we had not gone, we would go. So we did not go that whole year. So December 31st, we finally went to Captain D's. So that's the one time I've been in Captain D's, but it was pretty fun. We could smell it similarly. We could smell it and hear the drive-thru all the time. You love to have cheap meals. Yeah. Johnny Dow, thank you so much. We will um, link all the show notes where people can find you and pass up and make sure to get it in their communities. And their You're a natural. <laughs> uh, we appreciate you taking time. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Greg. Thanks again for checking out the podcast episode. Uh, feel free to show us some love on social media at Shermco. S-C-H-E-R-M-C-O and hashtag square pizza pod. Stay in touch for the next episode.